And when he had ceased speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great shoal of fish. And as their nets were breaking, they beckoned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And as they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You've got to admit, there aren't many places where you can go on a Sunday morning where you can hear Leaning on the Everlasting Arms and Willy Wonka all in the same setting. Good job, choir. This is Labor Day weekend. And you know, for so many years, Labor Day was traditionally the symbol for the end of the summer vacations. It was time for the kids to go back to school. I can remember many a year where the day after Labor Day, we were back in school. Not so much now because school usually starts weeks before Labor Day. But For many people, it's still a time to get away one last time in the summer. I know that some of you may have taken in a football game or two this weekend. I know that there are some people who have gone to uh, see loved ones. Other people may have gone camping. Some went to the lake. Some perhaps even went to fish. I don't know if you're a fisherman or not. You know, I used to fish. I haven't fished in a long time. I really wasn't very good at it. I don't think I was very patient. But when I was a child, I used to go with my father, and we would go up to Missouri, and we would meet some of my uncles and my maternal grandfather, and we would go up into the Ozarks, you know, to uh, Bull Shoals and Tanicomo, Table Rock Lake, and we would fish. And I would put my little minnows and my little worms on that hook, and I'd throw it out there, and I'd wait for about 30 seconds, and then I'd reel it back in to see if there was anything there, and there wasn't. I'd throw that line back out there again. I'd wait another minute or two and reel it back in, and then the worm or the minnow was usually gone at that point. I just didn't find it a lot of fun. But my family loved to fish. I had a favorite uncle. He was a sort of a philosopher, if you will, and I remember him saying one time, give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish, and he'll sit on a boat and drink beer all day. (laughs) It's the honest to God truth. It's what he said. Good Southern Baptist, love to fish and have something cold in his hands. You know, there are lots uh, lots of great fishing stories out there. You know, something about people who fish, they are some of the best storytellers, you know? I mean, they'll tell you the story about the fish they caught, and every time they tell the story again, the fish gets a little bit bigger, you know? But I'll tell you, no matter what fishing stories you've told before, 
or any that you've heard, there is none to compare with the story that we heard this morning in Luke 5 about a great haul of fish. It's a great story. It's about Jesus as he calls his disciples. He goes and he sees uh, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. They're cleaning their nets on the shore. They've been out all night fishing, all night fishing, and they haven't caught a thing. And Jesus comes to them and he says, can I borrow your boat? You know, I'd really like to preach to these people who are on the shore and I need a boat. Can I do that? And they say, sure, fine. We're cleaning our nets. We're going to go home, sleep. You can take the boat. So he goes out and he preaches. And then Jesus comes back and he says to Peter, he says, put out into the deep. Put out into the deep. Now, you might think it odd that a Jewish carpenter would try to tell a professional fisherman how to do his business, how to fish. I mean, Peter must have been thinking, I've been fishing all night. I haven't caught anything. If I haven't caught any fish during the nighttime, I'm probably not going to catch any fish now. But he'd seen Jesus. He'd seen him preach. And in Luke 4, Luke tells us that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And so I believe that Peter knew this person was something special. And so he said, at your word, we will lower our nets. And so they head out into the deep. And you heard what happened. You heard the story that Stephanie read in the scripture about how they let down their nets and all of a sudden in the deep water there were fish everywhere. I mean, their nets were so heavy. The boats were sinking. They called to the other fishermen. They said, come help us. Hurry. We got to catch these fish. Our boat's going to sink. And Peter stands before Jesus and he falls at his knees. And realizing whose presence he's in, I think, he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. He's thinking, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. But Jesus says to him, he says, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for men and for women. You'll be a fisher of people. And after that, Peter and Andrew and John, they leave their boats, they leave their business behind, and they follow him and become disciples. Peter put out into the deep. You know, sometimes we're called to put out into the deep. God calls us to do that, even though we've stumbled before, even though we've been on the deep water and we've been scared, we might have been sinking, but we're called to go again. You know, Peter's life is kind of an example of all of that. You're probably considered the greatest disciple of all. You know, he is the one that Peter said, Or Jesus said to him, he says, your name will now be Peter, which means the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. It is Peter who will become the first bishop of Rome. The Eastern Orthodox Christians claim him as the first bishop of Antioch, that he started their church as well. And yet it is Peter, Simon, who has so many flaws and so many failings. 
We all, of course, remember the story on the night that Jesus was arrested, how Peter denied Jesus three times. And yet, it is Jesus who continues to call on Peter, to call him to serve, to attain greater heights. You remember the story after the resurrection, how he meets with the disciples on the beach, and he says to Peter, he says, Simon, calling him his old name, Simon, do you love me? Lord, you know I do. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. It is Peter who on Pentecost will be in Jerusalem, and he will preach this powerful sermon to these people, telling them that they are to go and to follow the risen Lord. He's an amazing person. And yet, it is also Peter who walks on the water, you remember? He sees Jesus walking on the water, and he says, I can do that. He gets out onto the water, and he starts to walk, and then suddenly he begins to lose faith, and he begins to sink, and it is Jesus who has to pull him out of the water. Even someone as great as Peter stumbles and falls and sinks. To put out into the deep requires an act of faith. To move forward, it's an act of faith, especially if you've stumbled before. Today we are beginning a new sermon series called Daring Greatly. In life, sometimes failure or loss causes us to step back in life and to not try. But God encourages us to not live our life on the sidelines. He calls us to dare greatly. And when we do that, there will be successes and there will be failures. There will be joys and there will be sorrows. But when we dare greatly, then we begin to find out what kind of abundant life God has in store for us. You know, as your pastor of congregational care, I talk to lots of people who have lost, people who have lost loved ones, who have lost their health. It wasn't too long ago that I was talking to one of the people in our church here who had had a turn for the worse with their health, and because of that, their life had changed drastically. And this person said to me one day, she said, Dave, is there, is there someone that, that you can give me a name that I can send a card to or something, someone that I can encourage or that I can help to care for? She said, because you see, When I'm caring for others, it helps me not to think about my own problems. And I thought, talk about not being willing to stay on the sidelines, to be able to to go out into the deep despite what is happening in your life. Teddy Roosevelt had a great quote here. He said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, and because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails 
while daring greatly. Roosevelt was one of those people who dared greatly, but he certainly knew failings. It was early in his life that he was kind of a sickly child. He had asthma. At night, he would have these night terrors where he would wake up screaming, believing that someone had a pillow over his head and that he was suffocating. It terrified his parents, and the doctors couldn't do anything. And yet Teddy Roosevelt, even though he was just a young man, decided to throw himself into this regimen of trying to strengthen his body. When he was at a camp and two boys tried to bully him, afterwards he found a coach and he said, I want you to teach me how to box so that I can take care of myself and to strengthen my body. And so he pushed ahead. Teddy Roosevelt would later marry. Two years after they married, four years after they married, they would have their first child. But it was within two days after the birth of that daughter that his wife died. Eleven hours before she died, in the very same house, his mother also died. And Teddy Roosevelt said, the light in my life has gone out. So he moves out west. He goes to North Dakota. He buys a cattle ranch. He becomes a cowboy. He starts a new life. But after a few years, there's a really severe winter and it wipes out his herd. He loses all of his investment. He goes back home, back east. And you think at this point, he might just say, enough, enough. He came from a wealthy family. He didn't need to do anything else. But he starts again. He's willing to dare again, to dare greatly. And so he decides to enter politics. He's going to run for the mayor of New York City. And he gets out there and he puts his whole self into it. He runs and he comes in third. But he tried. It is later on that he'll become the assistant secretary of the Navy. But he resigns from that post when war breaks out in Cuba. He goes back, he goes down to Cuba. You may remember your history that he became the head of the Rough Riders. You know, they charged up San Juan Hill. He becomes a war hero. And when he comes back to the States, he will run for governor of New York and be elected. He will then be chosen as vice president. And when President McKinley is assassinated, he becomes president at 42, our youngest president ever. Theodore Roosevelt had what many historians consider a successful presidency. Reelected in 04 and 08, he decided to step down. President Taft takes office, who was Roosevelt's choice. But he's not pleased with how Taft is doing. So in 1912, he says, I'm going to run again. Nobody in his party is very happy with him for running again. But he says, I'm going to run again. I have to do this. He loses in the primaries. And then he says, I'm going to run as a third-party candidate. I'm going to be the head of the Bull Moose Party. And so he gets out there and he runs. And when he is running, he is about to give a speech one day when he is shot. He's actually shot. And the only thing that saves him is inside of his coat are his metal glass case and a 50-page speech manuscript that stopped the bullet from going any deeper. Roosevelt goes out and he gives the speech, this 90-minute speech. And he says to the people when he starts, he said, "Um, you may not know this, but I was just shot. (laughs) But he says, 
But it's hard to kill a bull moose. Bully. That was who Roosevelt was. He was just that kind of guy. He just kept going. He didn't win the election. He finished second. Once again, he could have retired. He could have said, enough. I've won. I've lost. I've had successes. I've had failures. But it's not enough. He decides to put out once again into the deep waters. And he joins an expedition to Brazil, into the jungles of Brazil. He's helping to navigate a river called the River of Doubt. He gets really sick and almost dies. But he makes it home. And finally, in 1919, when he is 60, only 60, he dies in his sleep. Someone said about Roosevelt, they said, he had to die in his sleep because if he had been awake, there would have been a really big fight. (laughs) Teddy Roosevelt, a man who lived in the arena and who dared greatly. Where are you in your life? Are you pulling everything out of life that it has to offer? Do you take risks? Or have you pulled back to the sidelines? You know, there's just, but you've been knocked down in life too many times. I think that Christ comes to call us, just like he called on Peter. He calls us despite what has happened in our lives, despite the setbacks, despite the failures, despite the sorrows. He calls us to get up and to go out into the deep water. And there's just two thoughts that I want to share with you as we think about what does it mean to put out into the deep water? And first of all, to put out into the deep, to dare greatly, you have to begin. You have to begin. I know it sounds simple, but you have to start. You have to begin. There are a lot of great beginnings this weekend. Some of you were in Norman, Oklahoma, for a new beginning as a new coach took over at OU. Now, mind you that not all beginnings are created equal, as you will know if you talk to the fans in Austin and in Waco. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll tell you the scores later. But there were lots of new beginnings this weekend. Every journey has to have a starting point, and sometimes it's that first step That's the hardest one. You know, sometimes leaving the safety of the shore is really scary. To put out into the deep, that is hard to do. Peter was dead tired. He'd been fishing all night. And yet he began again. Theodore Roosevelt had lost his wife, his mother, and a couple of years later, everything else he owned And yet he went back to New York and decided to enter politics, a career that would lead him eventually to the presidency. Last Monday was the 44th anniversary of the famous I Have a Dream speech by Dr. Martin Luther King. Some of you are old enough, you may even remember it. I remember that day, that hot August day in 1963. Thousands of people gathered in Washington in front of the Lincoln Monument to hear speakers. Martin Luther King was going to be the last speaker. Now, they had all been told seven minutes. That's what you get, seven minutes. Can you imagine a black Baptist preacher being told you've only got seven minutes to preach? 
But Martin Luther King, he takes his text and he begins to preach and to deliver it. But near the end, he gets caught up in the emotion of the moment. He begins to improvise. He begins to preach. And you know, the civil rights effort was just really beginning to rev up in 1963. There had been obstacles in the road. In Birmingham, black protesters had had the dogs sicked on them by Bull Connor and the police. There had been lots of troubles. George Wallace had stood in the door at the University of Alabama when a black tried to enroll in school there. And so Martin Luther King, in the moment, he understood that there was so much more to go, that we were just really beginning this journey, that we had to begin, that we had to start. And so he says to this audience, he says, go back to Mississippi, go back to Alabama, go back to Georgia, go back to the ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. It was that speech by Martin Luther King that inspired blacks and whites alike to continue the push for racial justice and equality. There would continue to be terrible setbacks. You know, there would be three young civil rights workers in Mississippi killed the next year. In 1965, a group of blacks who were trying to march in Selma, as they marched over the bridge, they were attacked by the state highway patrol with cattle prods and bullwhips. But it was also in 1964 that Congress finally passed the Civil Rights Act, which prohibited discrimination in public accommodations and in employment. And in the following year, they passed the Voting Rights Act. I think it really all began that afternoon when Martin Luther King addressed that crowd. You know, the journey for racial equality continues today. We are still trying to get it right where we judge people by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. But on that day, Martin Luther King said, we will not be intimidated. We will continue to dare greatly. They began the journey. Every journey begins with a first step. Secondly, if you're going to put out in the deep water, you can't turn back at the first sign of a storm. Too often we decide to take a risk, right? We, we get ourselves going and we get excited and we say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to move out of my comfort zone. I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to do this. And then there's trouble. Something happens and we turn back. We turn back because it looks too scary to move ahead. And so we go back to shore. You know, there's a tendency on the Sea of Galilee for storms to blow in late in the afternoon. The conditions are just right there that storms so often do come. Just like on this particular afternoon when Jesus and his disciples were getting ready to put out onto the Sea of Galilee, Jesus said, I want to go across the lake here. And the disciples said, Lord, you know, it looks like it might rain. You know, I mean, there could be a storm, right? He says, I want to go. And so they get into the boat and they begin to sail across the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And sure enough, the skies start to darken. The thunder comes, the wind picks up, the rains come, and the waves are crashing over the boat. And the disciples are terrified. And they say, we're going to die. Where's Jesus? Well, he's asleep. 
That's where Jesus is. He's asleep. And somebody says, go wake him up. And so they, they wake him up and they say, don't you care? We are about to perish. And he looks at them and very calmly stands up in the midst of this storm. And he rebukes the wind and he says to the waves, peace, be still. And all is calm. It's an amazing miracle. The disciples can't believe this. They say, who is this that even the storm obeys? And Jesus says to them, he says, ye who have little faith, ye who have little faith, sometimes the risks are huge that we take. And everyone, I believe, has to decide on their own how far they're willing to go. Later this month, here in Oklahoma City, there will be a very special religious event. The Roman Catholic Church will celebrate the beatification of Father Stanley Rother. I don't know if you know who he is or not. Beatification is, I am told, in the Catholic Church, one of the last steps on the road to becoming a saint. Stanley Rother was just a farm boy from Okarchi, Oklahoma, not very far from here. He grew up in that town where there was a strong Roman Catholic and Lutheran presence from the German immigrants who had come there so many years ago. And all along, his family thought, he'll grow up, he'll stay on the farm, just like his dad, like his brother. But when he's older, one day at Holy Trinity Catholic Church in Okarchi, he tells his family and he tells his priest, I feel like I'm being called by God to go into the priesthood. And they're surprised, pleasantly surprised, but they are in shock a bit. So he goes off to seminary, and in 63 he is ordained. He begins to serve parishes around the state of Oklahoma. And he does that for about five years. And then in 1968 he feels called to go out into the deep. He feels a call to go to Guatemala. There is a mission there. And so he travels to Guatemala. He lives in the rural highlands with this indigenous people that live there, these natives. And and he learns their language and he preaches to them in their language. He translates the New Testament into their language so that they can read the Bible. And on these 13 years that he is there, there is all sorts of amazing things they do. He helps them start a hospital. He helps them even start a radio station, which becomes very influential, as it is a very opinionated radio station. Because you see, in the 1970s, it was a time of great strife and violence in Guatemala. There was a civil war going on in which the government was fighting rebels who said they represented the people who believed that the poor were being oppressed by the government. And Father Rother was one of those who spoke out forcefully as an advocate for the poor in Guatemala. People in his congregation would disappear and later be found dead. And then in 1980, his name shows up on a so-called death list. And his people say, you have to go home. You have to go home. It's too dangerous to stay. And so reluctantly, he goes back to Okarchi. But he can't stay. 
He says, I miss my flock. I want to be back for Easter. And his brother says to him, if you go back, they're going to kill you. And Father Stanley Rother very calmly says, a shepherd cannot run at the first sign of danger. I don't know about you. I don't know if I would have gone back. But he loved these people. And so he goes back. And he celebrates Easter with them. And in June of 1981, late one night after midnight, three masked men break into the church and they shoot Father Rother twice and they kill him. In 2007, the process to make him a saint and the Catholic Church began. That usually takes years, sometimes decades, even hundreds of years. And yet in just a very few years, this process has advanced to the point that he is at this step where he is about to be made a saint. His family can't believe it, but here he is. Later this month at the Cox Center on September 23rd, they will celebrate Father Stanley Rother's beatification as he continues on to perhaps be named a saint. The shepherd cannot run at the first sign of danger. What's God calling you to do? What risk will you take to put out into the deep water? We can't all be president like Teddy Roosevelt, don't want to be. We all can't be a great civil rights leader. I hope that we won't have to be martyred for something we believe in. And we can't be Peter, the greatest disciple of all of them, right? But yet, we can be disciples. We can commit our life to following Christ, to be a disciple, to dare greatly, to move away from the shore. Mother Teresa said, We alone can't change the world, but together we can throw a stone in the water and make lots of ripples. There were so many great stories of heroism that have been coming out of Texas in the last few weeks. One of them caught my eye about a man who lived in Port Arthur, Texas, named Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson is a former Marine. He moved out of New Orleans in 2008 after surviving Hurricane Katrina. He went to Port Arthur, and then this came, Hurricane Harvey. And there he was again, right in the middle of this mess. And the floods came, and the waters rose. And last Saturday, they told people in this little town of Port Arthur, you need to evacuate. And so Robert Johnson took his children. He put one on his back. He put another in some sort of a plastic uh, container, a bin. And he took them in this waist-deep water, and they waded out, and they got to safety. Now, you would think at that point, you're home free, right? You've made it to safety. (laughs) But Robert Johnson, he turns around He wades back into the deep waters. He goes back to his house. He gets an inflatable uh, mattress. He blows it up, and he helps to evacuate as many of his neighbors as he can. And here's what he said to a reporter. I just figured that we was blessed that we came back, and everything was okay, except for my car and my house. 
But other than that, God will make it what it is. And that's how I see it. Robert Johnson, a former Marine. Peter, a fisherman. Common people called to do extraordinary things. I believe God calls us to do extraordinary things. Do you believe that? Or are they just words in a sermon? I think God calls us. I really do. I think he calls us to do extraordinary things, to throw that stone into the water and to see what ripples happen and where they go and where that takes us. Are you willing to put out into the deep to see what the abundant life really looks like with God in control? Are you willing to dare greatly? It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.